Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to pay the mortgage? Just get a job. Are you going to try to settle that? Why can't you be normal like everybody else? All right. Were your parents morons too? The savvy entrepreneur to the rescue. Congratulations. That really turned out well. I'm really good job. I'm getting ready. I'm ready. You know, I wish I thought of that. I never thought of even one day. How did you do that? I feel glad you're training your train. I wish I had the courage to follow my friends. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. We're broadcasting on WLCB 101.5 FM based in the greater Chicago, Milwaukee area. If you're an entrepreneur or a small business person or are thinking about becoming one, this show is for you. I'm Doris Nagel, your host for the next hour. I'm a crazy entrepreneur, and I love helping other entrepreneurs. I've counseled startups and small businesses over the past 30 years and helped start or started at least nine different businesses. And boy, oh boy, I have seen mistakes and I have made mistakes. The Savvy Entrepreneur Show really has two goals, to share helpful information and resources and to inspire you, hopefully make your journey as an entrepreneur faster and easier, maybe just a little bit more fun. Now, to help with that, I have guests on the show every week who are willing to share their stories and their advice and their expertise. And this week's guest is Dr. Philip Mead. He is the co-owner of a company called Gallagher Edge. Now, some of you may or may not remember a few months back, I had Laura Gallagher, who is the other co-owner of Gallagher Edge, but Philip has some other angles that he wants to talk about, and the topic of business culture is so important that I think it's worth continuing to revisit the topic because companies, in my personal opinion, just don't spend enough time focusing on it. Gallagher Edge applies the science of human behavior to organizations to create highly effective cultures. It has helped numerous C-suite teams successfully take their company to the next level. Now, Dr. Philip Mead, or Philip, as he says, we can call him, is USA Today and Wall Street Journal bestselling author. He has exceptional skills in organizational development, improving teamwork and team cohesion, organizational design, process engineering, strategic planning, leadership communication, cultural change, and other areas. He's the co-author of a book, The Missing Links, Launching a High-Performing Company Culture. Philip has led teams and organizations for 30 years in a variety of capacities. Following the Space Shuttle Columbia accident, he developed a plan for the organizational and cultural changes necessary for return to flight at NASA. He lives in Florida and is married with three kids. So with that introduction, Philip, thanks so much for being on the show today. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur. Thank you, Doris. I'm so happy to be here. Appreciate you having me on. I am happy to have you here. As I said in the introduction, business culture is one of those topics that particularly having worked with a lot of small companies and startups is something that often is just an afterthought. You know, startup companies are often very fixated on trying to make a buck, make ends meet, and the company culture sometimes gets short shrift. So I think it's an important topic for entrepreneurs. 
But, you know, before we get into that, let's talk about what Gallagher Edge does. Who's it designed to help and what exactly is it that you do? Well, Doris, as, as you said, we apply the science of human behavior to organizations so that really they can get a competitive edge and, and uh, achieve their goals together and enjoy the journey along the way. And so uh, we help leaders and guide them through a unique collection of experiences to align the self along with their teams and the culture from the inside out. And so we apply our missing link culture model um, and also use our missing link culture survey to identify areas of strengths and weaknesses within organizations. And from there, we can make recommendations to our clients on how they can improve their culture and their leadership. So we work with leaders one-on-one -on -one to enhance their communication and leadership skills, uh, especially in difficult conversations or conflict situations. Mm -hmm. And so our, our sessions are, are really meant to increase self-awareness and to provide leaders with an accountability partner that can challenge the way that they think about things which then will help to bring a new view of the world and their self as well. And that'll help them to bring new approaches to, uh, to yield greater results and, and to transform their organization. Well, I want to dig more into your process in just a little bit. But first, tell me about your role in the company and what you do versus what uh, Dr. Gallagher or Laura does and really how the two of you connected and became co-owners of the company. Sure. Well, I'm the chief operating officer for the company. Uh, Laura's the CEO. So, you know, within the company, we have complementary roles there. And so I, I, I help her with the, the running of the, of the company. And then we jointly lead the work that we do with clients. And so we both do, uh, do the consulting work. I probably do a little bit more of the, the strategy work with clients. Um, we believe that uh, when we work together, we, we really have a, a very powerful combination. She has the psychology background. I have the engineering and the systems thinking background. And so when we partner and, and work with companies, we bring both of those perspectives together. And it, it really provides a very powerful combination for how we see both at the personal, interpersonal, and uh, systems and organizational level to really help transform and diagnose uh, how everything works together to produce the, the performance of the organization and, and solve problems and figure out how to optimize things so that it works as, as optimally as possible. Well, you didn't mention how you and Laura connected, but I'm going to connect the dots because in your both of your bios, you talk about NASA and the Columbia shuttle incident. Yep. So I'm going to guess that's where you first connected. Is that right? It is. It is. And, and you mentioned it a little bit in my bio, but uh, after the space shuttle Columbia accident, I was asked to lead all of the organizational and cultural changes for return to flight because the, uh, the accident investigation found that the culture at NASA was as responsible for the accident as the piece of foam that hit the leading edge of the wing. I did not realize that. That's very interesting. Yes. So NASA was not actually allowed to return to launching shuttles. We weren't allowed to fly again until we proved to Congress that our culture had been changed and that we had fixed the organizational and cultural changes um, or problems that had created the accident in the first place. Wow. And, 
And so I was asked to, to lead that. Yeah. That's a pretty powerful mandate, isn't it? It, it? it was. It was it was pretty frightening, honestly, to uh, to be asked to do that, because honestly, NASA was a really great organization. And so it in a strange way, it would have been better if there had been a whole lot of problems with it. But just the previous year, it had been voted as the uh, the best place in the federal government to work. And so, you know, I, I had to uh, figure out how do you how do I figure out how to identify what leads to an accident like this and how can the culture be to blame and at the same time, it be a great place to work? That really led to a lot of what underlies our culture model. That's a very interesting sort of um, knife's edge there. So did you find that most of the people at NASA were pretty humble in working through this or were some of them kind of a little bit cocky about all the brains and massive amounts of intelligence that NASA holds. You know, it's a it's a little bit of a of a mixed bag, and and that's why I hired Laura and and other organizational psychologists to work with me on on this problem because, on the one hand, people very much were interested in helping to solve this problem because they cared very deeply about fixing the issues and ensuring that this never happened again. And at the same time, the root cause of the issues um, at the very deep personal level were created by defense mechanisms that um, were at the subconscious level. So the individuals weren't aware of the things that were happening, the cognitive biases and, and other things that were happening. They were things that people weren't really aware of. So it wasn't intentional. You know, these were great people that were very hardworking and very dedicated to what they were trying to achieve. That's why the psychology of, you know, of human behavior is so important here. It's interesting you say that about NASA, and I think maybe entrepreneurs' first blush would be like, well, NASA, that's a huge organization. I'm a little startup company or I'm a little Main Street business. But what you just said about the cognitive biases you know, people being unaware of them and being very focused on getting jobs done. And those sentences, if you hadn't been talking about NASA, would certainly apply to most startup businesses that I've worked with because it absolutely does. Very, very focused on trying to get a product out the door or satisfy a customer, find a customer, find funding, whatever it is. And a lot of stuff just sort of happens however it happens. Yes, absolutely. And that's, that's a lot of what I discovered in terms of, of the model we created and, and in terms of really, truly learning how organizational culture works. And this is some of what Laura talked about in her podcast with you is, you know, the, the emergent nature of organizational culture, because you can't look at things in isolation and just take a look at, well, these are great people or they're, they're really hardworking or they're really smart people. All of those things are very, very true. And there are also these organizational factors and these environmental factors that are part of the broader system that they're working within. So these are true in startups as well. There are startups out there, obviously, with very intelligent people and very hard workers that are very dedicated to producing what it is that they're trying to do. 
And there's also a lot of extreme pressures that they may be under to try to, you know, get a product out the door and meet a deadline. And, and they may feel that if they don't get a particular product to market it by a certain deadline, that the company's going to go out of business. And they may feel, you know, equally responsible for that particular product or that company as the NASA engineers did for the shuttle. And so they may feel a similar sense of ownership and pressure. And so there may be similar cognitive biases that kick in and, and drive defensiveness and other behaviors that start to kick in that they may not even be aware of that cause some, some problems with the culture. Yeah. Well, you've mentioned these cognitive biases. Talk a little bit about what those are. How do you know them when you see them? So one of my favorite examples of this that I like to use is, is if I were to take you up to the top of the Empire State Building and there was this beam that was stuck out in midair hanging out up there and I, I had duct taped $1,000 to the end of this beam and I said, Doris, if you walk out to the end of this beam and you know you grab that $1,000, you can have it. Would you be willing to do that? No. Yeah, most people wouldn't. And we were talking before before the podcast started, and, and so I, I know that you said you have one child. And, and so if your child was out at the end of that beam, and I said, Doris, your child is out at the end of that beam, you need to go out and, and save your child. Would you, would you walk out to the end of the beam to save your child? I thought, <laughs> yeah, probably. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so call her and yell at her to come back. But <laughs> so, if your child was young enough that it couldn't save itself, then you would you would walk out there to save your child, right? Yeah. It, yeah. So, so what happens with decision making is that it's it's a risk trade off that we're making in our head, and so when we take one side of the equation and we basically elevate it to infinity, right? It creates a challenge for us in, in making a good risk assessment when we're saying what's a good risk trade-off. And so what was happening for some of the engineers for NASA is they were in an environment where the shuttle for them was like their child. It was the baby. They cared so much about the shuttle program. They were so dedicated to seeing it succeed. And we were in an environment where there was a constant threat at the time of program cancellation. So they felt like they were constantly in a position of having to go to great lengths to save the program. And so there was a lot of schedule pressure. There was a countdown clock that was actually created as a screensaver for a particular um, space station core complete that was on a lot of engineers' computers at the time. There was a lot of different environmental factors that was was going in to create all of this schedule pressure um, and, and a lot of, of belief that they had that they had to, to do these, go to extreme measures to, to save the program. And the same thing, as I said, could be true for entrepreneurs and for their workforce. If they feel like they have to save their company or they have to save the product, and if they don't go to some sort of an extreme measure in or, or if they don't do this, that it's going to die, that the the company's going to go bankrupt or that the product's going to die, then the, the extent or the extreme that they're willing to go to in order to make that happen, now all of a sudden the risk reward trade-off starts to get elevated. 
And so they're willing to take on more and more and more risk. And so what they're willing to do or what they're willing to accept, it starts to get pushed out of whack. And so this is where we start to see people, their, their work-life balance starts to get out of whack. The way that they start to treat other people starts to get out of whack, what they're, what they're willing to accept in terms of what's okay and what's not okay. Even ethics starts to get out of whack in some cases. So all of these things, this is as an example of, of cognitive bias, because now all of a sudden, if they have this strong emotional tie to this product or whatever, they've started to equate it to a child or some other thing, and they believe that they have to save it. And that's really what's going on for them cognitively. Um, some crazy stuff starts to happen. And so defense mechanisms kick in. And, and the crazy thing is, is it's subconscious. So they're not aware of this. They're not thinking to themselves in a logical way up in the, you know, that prefrontal cortex. If you talk to them, they're not going to sit there and tell you, oh, I'm making this in a rational way. But on a behavioral level, if you looked at them, this is what they're doing. Yeah. And so these are the behaviors. It's almost, that it's almost like you're layering on this whole, you know, it's my baby, you know, I need to do this. I mean, I think most of us, even if it's, we're not in a business that it's our baby that we're that passionate about, just stress, plain old ordinary stress, I'm sure at least it does for me, takes its toll on how we react as people. I mean, look at what COVID is. <laughs> You know, yep. people and civility oh, yeah. and politics. And I mean, it's just, you know, sometimes some pretty strange things come out of people's mouths and, um, yeah. and people start to lose perspective about things. Right. You know, one of the, one of the examples that we used in our book was actually was from COVID. Do you remember the toilet paper hoarding? Oh God. Yeah. I ended up, yeah, I have to tell you a funny story. Uh, that some people out there may laugh at, but I've heard my brother in Texas, he said that toilet paper's disappearing. I'm like, those people in Texas are dumb. I'm not, the, the people here in Illinois are way more sensible than that. And the next thing I knew, I went to the grocery store and I went to the Target and Walmart and there's no toilet paper. So I ended up finding some of the, you know, what there was a surplus of was the restaurant size rolls, those scratchy not so nice, ginormous rolls that the restaurant, you know, restaurants and institutions, people, there really wasn't a shortage of toilet paper. What there was, was a shortage of the rolls that people use at home. What there was a surplus of were these giant restaurants, because all the restaurants were closed. So I bought like for $36, I think a year and a half's worth of, I didn't realize it, but it was like a year and a half worth of toilet paper. We have finally finished using <laughs> giant scratchy rolls. And now there really isn't a toilet paper shortage, I don't think. But anyway, a total digression, but funny story. Well, it I mean it's a it's another good example of of what we're talking about. You know, sometimes when people are under stress and they start to feel out of control, people want to search for an area of their life where they can have control. And so if I'm out of control, I can't control COVID. I can't control this pandemic that's raging out of control. Maybe one area that I can exert control over is I can control the amount of toilet paper that I have or something like that. And so I'm going to hoard toilet paper, right? And so, so it makes me feel like I have control. And so I will exert control in some area of my life that makes me feel like I'm now in control of something, even though it's completely irrelevant to what really the problem is. 
it's subconscious, but it's it's one way that my brain is using. Um, it's a defense mechanism, psychological defense mechanism. My brain is trying to protect me psychologically rather than than me looking at what I feel out of control about and don't feel comfortable with. It will create this smoke screen, psychological smoke screen and say, oh, let's look over here instead. Hey, toilet paper, I can control that. Look how much toilet paper I have. I'm really super in control. I have more toilet paper than anybody on my street. Well, and that, you know, that really underscores the the subconscious level and how we as human beings, we want to think of ourselves as so evolved, but responding on a pretty primal basis. I mean, when our first thought of stress, oh my God, pandemic, who knows what that means? We're we're totally stressed out. And and our response is to go to something involving bodily functions. That should tell you there is <laughs> there is a serious crocodile brain at work, yep. regardless yep. of whether what we say coming out of our mouth about how sophisticated we are. Yep. Well, and, you know, let's bring this back to the, the startup or to, to organizations. I mean, we see the same thing within organizations as well. You know, sometimes the most important thing that a CEO can focus on is organizational culture. And that's really where they could get the biggest bang for their buck. That's, that's really what is holding them back, especially as companies are trying to scale. Um, we see a lot of times as companies are trying to scale, they hit a ceiling or they hit a wall and they can't scale anymore because their organizational culture, they, it's holding them back. They're starting to, to run into people problems. Their processes aren't, aren't there to support it. Their managers, they don't have the skill set to be able to, to do what they want to be able to do. They don't have communication in place. So a lot of different things, their structure doesn't support it. And rather than, than focus on the culture, because the CEO or, or the leadership team, they don't understand it and they don't know how to control it. Rather than focus on that, they will focus on other things that they do know how to control. And that's where they will pour their time and energy and money is in what they do know how to control rather than what is most important um, because they don't feel competent in that area to control it. I want to explore that a little more with you. So, so what are the kinds of things that start to happen when a company scales and how does culture start taking a hit? Yeah. So there's, there's usually pain points that we start to see, you know, we call it the dirty dozen. There's usually about 12 different pain points that we start to, to see poke out. And a lot of times it's around the ability to either, um, enjoy the journey, we call it, which, which deals a lot with the interpersonal problems and issues or with the ability to, uh, to truly execute s- strategic goals and, and, uh, and get things done as an organization. And so we'll hear things from CEOs and leaders like, you know, I, I just don't enjoy going into work as much as I used to. Um, you know, I spend too much of my time dealing with the people problems. I just wish people would get along. Um, I don't understand why people don't understand this stuff. I've told them a dozen times, or it seems like our strategic initiatives take so long for things to get done that we're never going to get there. Or, you know, my, my processes and, and systems just, they just seem like they're, they're not going to get us there. Um, Or, you know, I, I worry that my leadership team doesn't have what it takes to get us to the next level. 
You know, th those are the those are the pain points that we start to hear things like that. When we hear leaders say things like that, it, it's usually a, a, a sign or a symptom that, you know, from as they're scaling that their their culture is starting to, to get in the way. You know, it's funny. I just I had an entrepreneur. Oh, I guess about three weeks ago, talking about how he missed so much being in the garage with these, you know, two other guys and that it seemed like they made decisions kind of like a single organism and it was simple and they played rock music and now everything was very formal and, you know, he, I'm hearing his voice say this and I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking, Oh, there's an example right there. Yep. Yep. It's, and that's exactly what happens. I mean, it, it's a lot easier when it's smaller. It's, it's in the garage. It's five, five individuals and communication is easier. There aren't departments. Um, you're not worried about handoffs. Processes are, are, you know, there's no need for formalized processes. The CEO or whoever it is, the founder slash CEO, they're able to keep their hands in everything or their fingers on everything. But as it scales and it becomes a true larger organization, usually, you know, there's some magical point around 30 employees where it gets too large for one CEO to really continue to be involved in everything. Now you've got more specialization that you need to have. You truly need to have individuals or departments that that kind of are in charge of functions that's the reason that you hired them and and they need to be able to understand what they're doing and have tasks that they go off and essentially do on their own and be able to work somewhat autonomously and so you start to have this division of duties you need to be able to have handoffs between these departments you need to be able to uh have communication flows. Now, multiple people need to understand the strategy. And if they don't, then you start to have people working at cross purposes. And that oh, right, right. And you, wars. <laughs> well, and you need to be able to um, have new people be able to come in and pretty easily yep. step into a new role. And you can't do that if there's all this you know, institutional memory of, uh, well, that's not how we do that here. Well, yeah. how, how, how am I supposed to know? Funny you say that. Now I start to see about the baby thing and why it's so difficult for some CEOs, particularly that were involved with the founding of the company. It's, it's really hard for some of them to let go right. of their baby because it's like letting your letting your kid grow up, you know. You gotta okay. Exactly. My my business isn't a baby anymore. It's an adolescent. I need to change my yeah. mo. And I'm thinking, in some cases, somebody who's a great entrepreneur starting a business sometimes isn't the right person if they can't let go. And some people can't. Some people can't make that transition. I personally believe, or don't want to then sometimes it's time to, to change leadership too, right? Yeah, I mean, we believe it's a choice. And, you know, we have, a, we have tools that we use to help CEOs and help leaders to see, you know, the effectiveness of those choices. But if, you know, if, if you've scaled to a certain point, you know, as a CEO, if you are still 
reaching down to the lower levels of the organization to make decisions, people start to feel micromanaged. It slows the speed of the organization down because there's a limit to, to how fast one person can make decisions. Right. You know, we, we, we look at decisions in terms of the criticality, uh, you know, how, how accurate does a decision have to be? How quickly does it have to be made? Uh, how broadly does it affect across the organization? You know, different things like that affect what level should it be made at? If, if a decision is, has to be made frequently and quickly, and it only affects a narrow swath of the organization, wh why on earth would you want to make that at a, at a high level of your organization? That's, you know, that's, that's going to, it's either going to consume all of your executives time, or it's going to constantly be lagging and being bogged down because your executives aren't going to have time to make it as frequently as it, as it calls for. And so it's going to be creating a bottleneck. And speaking as somebody who's worked in a large organization, who worked for a boss like that, I have to tell you, it was very, over time, quite demoralizing because you never felt like you were good enough. You never felt like the boss really trusted you. You never felt like there was a place for you to really grow. And right. I ended up leaving that position fairly yep. shortly thereafter. And in fact, there was a lot of turnover in that department because of that person's management styles. I, yeah. I think a lot of people listening, maybe who aren't even entrepreneurs, are probably nodding and thinking, well, I can relate to that. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's why our culture model, our Missing Links culture model, I mean, we have four strands in it. And the four strands, we focus on creating maturity, diversity, community and unity. And, and the unity piece is really about a lot of the organizational systems that create that unity um, within an organization. And you can't separate all of these different pieces and parts because how you go about creating that engaged employee at the self level that feels empowered and, and feels truly engaged and, and a part of, of something special, you can't do that within an organizational structure where they at the same time feel micromanaged and undervalued because there's a, a, a boss or a supervisor who they feel like is constantly coming in and, and doesn't trust them uh, to make decisions that they feel like they were hired to, to make. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, you mentioned the Gallagher Edge process called, I think you said the missing link. Talk a little bit more about that process in detail and how you developed it and how you use it. Sure. So as I said, it was a challenge for me when I was asked to lead the culture changes after the Columbia accident, because NASA had what I thought was such a, a good culture because it was such a great place to work. And what I discovered was that there's a difference between uh, an effective culture and a good culture. And for us, an effective culture is one that not only creates a high level of employee engagement and also improves the world, but it's also one that helps the company to execute its strategy. And so it's aligned with the strategy of the organization. And for, for a company like NASA, obviously that's going to mean that it is producing a, a high level of system safety. And so 
when we talk about what does that mean, what does a culture like that look like? When we started researching it and we started looking into it and, and uncovering a lot of what was creating this, um, we came to the conclusion that a truly effective culture has four traits to it. It has maturity. It has a culture of maturity where employees have the ability to uh, work together with a, a high degree of, of individual maturity and, and produce that. It has diversity where employees um, have a, a high degree of differences and uh, work together well. It has a community um, and then it also has unity. And so, so those are the, the four different strands that, that our model has is that it has all four of those are present within an organization. And so when we work with companies, we, we help to, like I said, evaluate the degree to which all four traits are present and, and where, they, uh, where they aren't, and we help them to uh, develop those even more. And we do that through these missing links. And uh, the missing links are how we connect the employees together in the organization to create those. So for example, maturity is created by connecting employees in an organization together through the characteristics of, of self-acceptance, self-awareness, and self-accountability. And so when you have employees that are connected together with those three traits, um, it really produces a high level of maturity within your organization. Hmm. So why are those so important? How did you decide on those? And can you give me an example of an employee who might exhibit those and one that might not? Sure. So it's it really like like we keep saying it's it's all about the the science of human behavior. And so when you begin to peel back the onion and look at uh, what makes human beings tick and how they work, it's amazing how how those three things at the core of us as human beings create a high degree of effectiveness. And so first we start with self-acceptance. And so when I accept myself for who I am, both my flaws as well as the extent to which I am actually really good at stuff too, it gives me the ability to then truly see myself. When I don't accept myself, then I will actually hide things from myself and it'll decrease my self-awareness because talk about defensiveness. I've mentioned that term a lot previously. What happens is we all have this psychological immune system that protects us from feeling pain associated with thinking things about ourselves that are less than desirable. So when I think something about myself that is undesirable, it actually, it doesn't feel good. And I don't like that. And so we're all motivated as human beings to avoid pain. And so that psychological immune system kicks in and won't let me see things about myself that are painful because I'm trying to avoid pain. And so when I have a high degree of self-acceptance, it allows me to see more about myself. And so more self-awareness allows me to, to see more and see greater areas for where I can improve myself as well as see more areas for how I can be more effective and see the, the things that I am good at and be able to optimize those and, and really double down on those. And then the last piece, of course, is self-accountability because the first two are great, but unless I do something about it, you know, it's all just academic, right? And so self-accountability says that when I have ownership for my own actions and I believe that I 
can influence the world and I can do something about it. And I recognize the ways that I contribute to my own world and take action to change that, that I can actually do so. And so all three of those, we like to think of it in terms of a Venn diagram, you know, where there are three circles that overlap, combine all three of them together. And in the center of it, when you put the three of them together, it's, it's, it's magic, you know, and you get someone with a high degree of maturity. When you think about an employee like that in your organization, who is, has a high degree of self-acceptance, um, a high degree of self-awareness and a high degree of self-accountability, that's the type of individual that if you go to them, you're able to, to have those difficult conversations with, because if they have that high degree of self-acceptance, self-awareness and self-accountability, then you can go to them and you can say, you know, I think we could do better on this particular product and they won't freak out on you, right? Because they have high self-acceptance. So they're not going to, they're going to be okay. They're okay with themselves. So they have the ability to then be self-aware enough to see the, the places where this product could be better. And they will have self-accountability to take ownership for the ways in which they can, they contributed to its current state and how they could make it better. And so that's, you know, that's the nirvana of an employee, right? It is if you have a healthy culture. You know, I'm thinking back to at least one business that I worked with where you could be those things, but unfortunately, you were never rewarded for it. The people who were rewarded were the ones who went around talking behind people's backs and got people in trouble for, you know, all sorts of stuff. And there wasn't any accountability. There wasn't. You know, so the type of employee that you're talking about either starts to alter their behavior and question themselves, which is unhealthy, or they end up leaving because that kind of organization doesn't deserve an employee like that. Yep. Um, That's a great point. And it occurs to me, too, what you're talking about probably has carryovers into people's personal lives, too. Obviously, you sound like you're, you know, you're a better marriage partner. You're a better friend or sister or brother if you have those traits too. Yeah, we get uh, we get comments all the from from uh, the companies and the individuals and companies that we work with about that. One of my favorite stories actually was uh, we worked with this individual at one of the uh, conferences that we did and. My partner was out in uh, California and happened to run into him and his wife and his wife ran up and hugged her. <laughs> so yeah, it makes a difference in people's lives. It does. Absolutely. You know, I, I want to go back to what you just said too, because something I didn't say that, that I, I wanted to is that we always say that leadership is what holds the whole model together, right? So just like you were pointing out, I, it's great to have the, the individual employees who have maturity in the diversity, community, unity, all of these things we want to create. And it's created by the leaders. You know, leaders are the ones who create the, the organizational culture. And so if, if the leaders aren't modeling it, if the leaders aren't actively creating it, then the organizational culture is not going to have it. So it's, it's not just about, you know, the employees creating it from the bottom up. And it's not just about the leaders doing it from the top down. I mean, we want it from the whole system's perspective. I've always wondered whether it's possible to truly change the culture of a business. But I I guess it sounds for me like you would argue, yes, it is possible. Yes, it is. It is. 
So how does a company start out trying to do that if that's what they want to do? Well, it's about being intentional about it and deciding what you want your culture to be, being open about it. It's about, uh, you know, it's a, it's a team sport. It's, you know, we, we say it's, <laughs> it's, you know, you have to crowd, you crowdsource it. So the leaders own the culture change and, and it's a crowdsourced effort. So it's the leaders will want to own it and they will want to get input support and buy-in from, from the employees to help with it. Um, so it's, it's not just done by the leaders. It's, it's with the involvement and support of the employees. And so really getting that, that true buy-in and support from everyone within the organization to, to create it. But you know, I say this a lot, you can't hit a target that you can't see. So first step is about deciding what do we want our culture to be? What does it look like? And, and uh, then becoming intentional about creating that. Is it possible for companies to see enough and business leaders to see enough outside themselves to change the culture themselves? Or do most companies need some kind of external support and a mirror held up for them occasionally? Um, I think it's possible and I think it's extremely useful to have external support. Uh, you know, that, that mirror is very, very useful, whether it's just someone else within your company or whether it is an external consultant like us. I also think it's extremely useful. I want to say it's, it's necessary to have a, a model for organizational culture in order to be able to, to manage culture change. Having done culture change for, for many, many years, I don't personally know how I could do it without, without having a model to, to guide me along the way, because uh, there's just so much to it. So that's one of the reasons why we love our Missing Links culture model so much. You know, it's, it's very useful to us in, in guiding it. If a company is looking to change its culture, how should they go about finding the right external support? Obviously, you might say, well, you should call Gallagher Edge. But, but even, <laughs> if, even if every business that was thinking about changing their culture wanted to call you, you couldn't help them all. What's your advice for companies who are looking for external support? What, what are the kinds of questions they should ask? And how should they go about finding the support that's the right fit for them if they want to change their culture? I think there's a lot of, uh, obviously, trust involved in the relationship when you hire someone to help you change your culture. So it's, a, it's a re- very much a relationship. So I, I think that that's, that's a big piece of it. So they would want to find someone that they uh, that are comfortable with and that they trust. And uh, also someone that, that they trust understands organizational culture and, and how it works and, and has uh, an understanding of, of really truly what it is and, and how to uh, work with companies on organizational culture. There are different models for organizational culture. Obviously, I'm, I'm particularly fond of, of ours. Yeah, um, of course. And there are other ones. And so I would say, you know, take a look at the model that is used by the company and uh, decide whether or not it makes sense to you and, and you like it and you know, that uh, you're, you're comfortable using that and that they, they can explain it to you in a way that makes sense that you would be comfortable using that because that's probably, I would assume, what they are going to use to, to guide the work within your organization. And so uh, 
So that's that's kind of the the way that I would evaluate it would be those two things, the relationship, their knowledge, experience, credibility, and then the, the model that they use. Good advice. Well, you know, we haven't talked about your book. I know that the missing link features prominently in your upcoming book. Talk about it. What's it called? Where can people find it? What led you to write it? Yeah. So the missing links, our book, it's a great source for an initial look at how organizational culture works. So it's called the missing links, launching a high performing company culture. It will be available on September 7th. Uh, You can get it through Amazon or Barnes and Noble. We really just wanted to take the opportunity to document our model and how it works and how we arrived at it and, and why we do things the way that we do. If someone is thinking about culture change or wants to learn more about organizational culture, it's a great way to, to take a look at learning more about organizational culture. Even if you don't want to use our company, um, it would be a good way to, to take a look and begin to learn about organizational culture. And then it would be a, a good way to then be able to evaluate other culture models and other, other companies and, and compare what they're, how they change culture and work with culture against uh, the way that we do it. And if you want to try and do it yourself too, it, there's a lot in there. We tried to uh, offer a, a lot of uh, value to readers in it. And so uh, we, we tried to put all the content that we could in there. Our editor was constantly <laughs> trying to pull us back from uh, making this uh, war and peace. And so uh, it, it was very difficult. We wanted to try to offer as much value as we could throughout the book to help provide a resource to individuals about culture, because we're very passionate about the topic. What led you to write it? I mean, what are you hoping to accomplish with writing the and publishing the book because that's a lot of work to do that's for sure yeah well like i said we wanted to uh we wanted to talk about our view of organizational culture and how we saw it we feel like the way that we see organizational culture is rather unique because we take a uh, a systems view of the organization and uh combine that with the psychology and the science of human behavior and so we feel like it's a very unique view of, of organizational culture. And so we wanted to document that and get it out there for people. We also felt like our book is, is unique in that um, there's a, a lot of books out there that because culture is so big and so complex, a lot of books focus on just a specific aspect of organizational culture. And uh, we wanted to talk about a complete model for organizational culture. And so uh, I think we accomplished that. And ours is a, is a holistic model that organizations can use for how to address organizational culture instead of just teamwork or engagement or, or one particular aspect. Philip, it's been great having you on the show. The time is zipped by. I would like to give you a chance, though, to let people know how to reach you in case someone's listening who would like to talk to you about the book or maybe engage Gallagher Edge or just maybe brainstorm about business culture. What's the best way for people to reach out to you? You can find us at our our website at gallagheredge.com. And you can also um, 
and listen to some of our podcasts. We have a, a podcast called The Evolved Leader. You can find that on our website as well. We also have a newsletter that, uh, that you can subscribe to as well if people are interested and uh, people can, uh, can sign up for that and uh, opportunity to, uh, to, to hear from us on a regular basis. Also, we have a, a great membership site called Insider Edge that, uh, that people can uh, join and get access to featured videos of the week and as well as a, a pretty large library of over 100 videos of, of wow. content on organizational culture, different recordings and, and Q&A sessions. So you can uh, find that at our website, GallagherEdge.com as well. And uh, that's a great resource for people who are just wanting to learn more about organizational culture and uh, would like to, to dip their toe in it. So it's a, it's a great way to sign up for additional information. Wow. It sounds like a veritable treasure trove of information about business culture and changing company culture. Well, you know, one last time, tell people about the book and when it's coming out and where they can find it. Yeah. Our book is uh, called The Missing Links, Launching a High-Performing Company Culture, and that will be launching on September 7th, available through both Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble. Hope you'll uh, pick up a copy. We think it'll be a really valuable resource to uh, anyone who's interested in organizational culture or, or leadership in general. There's a lot of great resources in it, and uh, anyone who buys a copy will have access to a lot of expanded content through us, through our website, as, as well as through our Insider Edge uh, video platform. Three, three months of uh, free membership when you buy the book. So uh, pick up your copy. Yeah, absolutely, folks. Look for it. I know I'm going to look for it when it comes out, and I look forward to reading it. Philip, thanks so much for being on the show this week. It was great having you, and as always, talking about the great work that Gallagher Edge is doing and the important topic of business culture. So thanks again for being on the show. Thank you, Doris. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Yes, I did as well. Folks, that's our show for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks again, especially to my guest today, Dr. Philip Mead, who's the co-owner of Gallagher Edge, talking about business culture. You can find more helpful information and resources on my website at globalocityservices.com. There's a library there, free blogs, tools, podcasts, and other resources. My door is always open for comments, questions, or suggestions, or just to shoot the breeze. Email me at dnagel at lakesradio.org. I'd love to hear from you. Be sure to join me again next Saturday at 11 a.m. Central, noon Eastern. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneurship.